And after you share the highlight, I also want you to share your top takeaway from last week. So you have to rewind your brain, pull out some notes. So with somebody there next to you, so we talked about epistemology last week, big word. So share a top takeaway from last week. Take about two minutes. All right, all right. Well, I hope you guys had a good week, good weekend. Uh, anybody able to attend World Mandate? Yeah, it was good. You guys are you guys are gluttons for punishment. You've been here like three straight days, four straight days. Yeah. <laughs> Welcome. You're like you're like pastors now. Been at the church four straight days. Um, Awesome. It was a great weekend, and um, I hope it was refreshing while it was also consuming, energy and time consuming. Um, so let me, let me pray. We're going to dive into these big words tonight, which uh, we'll break down one by one. Uh, but I want to pray first, so if you just pray with me. Father, thank you for this time together, and we ask for the, the ministry of the Spirit tonight, that you would touch our hearts and minds and the result of these classes, this information would be worship, it would be ministry, it would be uh, gl your glory being reproduced in the earth. You would equip us and tether us to Jesus as a result of what we talk about tonight. And you'd, you'd just animate the scriptures, animate your word tonight to impact us and uh, cause us to apprentice our, ourselves to Jesus even more. In Jesus' name, amen. All right. Well, hey, we're just going to dive right in. A little bit of extra content from last week. I did some extra digging after some, some of your questions. Try as I might, I could not find out who was at the Council of Carthage when they kind of really canonized the New Testament. Um, but I did find, this was helpful, uh, digging back through my old notes. Uh, there was, this is just, just looking back before we look ahead. Uh, the the letters that they ended up canonizing had to pass a threefold test. Okay, so they actually did really scrutinize. And again, by this time, there were pretty much the twenty seven books of the Bible, books of the New Testament we use today, were what were widely accepted as inspired scripture. But what what do you guys guess was the threefold test to pass kind of the canonization test for the New Testament letters? We want to take a, take a stab at it. What do you mean by that? Yeah, yeah. So the, the word that they used was authority. So they, the letters themselves claimed authority and had some connection to those original apostles. So the timeline, they, they could trace them back to uh, those, those original close followers of Jesus. Okay, so timeline time or authority, basically apostolic authority. Uh, what's another one, do you think? Right, yeah, which gave them authority. Yep, yep. Remember, read a little quote from the Gospel of Thomas last week that was so wonky. So what do you think is another? Doctrinal consistency. Absolutely, yeah. So if there was anything that deviated from the Old Testament, from the Torah, and the, the spirit of the law had been revealed to the Torah. Uh, and then the other one was just the testimony of the spirit through the church. So these letters had already been bearing fruit for 300 years or for, uh, yeah, well, 250, 300 years at this point. So um, these 27 letters without fail passed that test and none of the others came close that were in circulation at the time. Uh, and really it wasn't until many centuries later that there were other 
competing kind of, you know, New Testament era letters. There, this wasn't much of a debate at this time in the fourth century. Okay, so that's just for what that's worth, uh, but I could not find out who was actually there. It was common for the bishops to come to these councils, so the bishop of Alexandria, the bishop of Carthage, the bishop of Jerusalem, the bishop of uh, Antioch, the bishop of Rome, and so on. They would convene with their entourage at these various councils, but I couldn't find a record of this council specifically at the canonization of Scripture. So just wanted to circle back to that question. Um, and then a couple of other bits that we didn't get to last week. I'm just going to throw this out there for what it's worth. I think it's helpful uh, material. It's a bit of a, it, it may not seem to fit squarely with epistemology and then meta narrative today. But uh, anybody heard of Robert Keegan or Lisa Leahy? They're Harvard researchers with, uh, into adult cognitive development. Okay, they have a really excellent book out called An Everyone Culture. And basically, they're applying their research in. Uh, kind of the workplace, the marketplace. It's mainly been used in the educational space. I don't know if they're believers or not, but their research I thought was really enlightening, especially when we look at what's going on today in our culture with all of the 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 the, the fevered pitch of debates and how polarized everything is. And and I think where this intersects with this class is when we're talking about worldview. What we don't want to do is create more kind of polarized um, or, or, or come at this from a spirit of polarization that's kind of us and them and kind of, you know, create this camp with a standard. Obviously, we have a standard. His name is Jesus. But the spirit with which we engage in dialogue and debate is, is in the spirit of Jesus. And unfortunately, when I kind of scan the airwaves and, and see High prof- a lot of times, high-profile Christians who are debating on that national stage, often they're very, they're very intellectual, and what they're saying is sound, but the spirit with which they do it often does not match the, the spirit of Jesus. And so, anyway, they, they came out with this research and um, have some diagrams, if this thing will connect. It has a very short range. Hold on. There we go. Um, so basically Robert Keegan, uh, built on, there's, there's more to this we're not going to get to. That's why it starts at stage three and not stage one. But this idea that like how children develop, there are these five stages of development, uh, throughout child, childhood, children's cognitive development. And then the, the thinking up until the early 80s was that like adults are just kind of fixed. Like the brain is very static after that point. And you can change the software, but you can't really change the hardware of the brain. Does that make sense? Like the hard wiring of the brain is pretty much set at about 18, 20 years old. Well, he came along and said, actually, uh, it doesn't seem to bear out in, in our research. And so for 40 years now, he's been developing these models to show how adults' brains can continue to develop. Bottom line, he came up with these three additional stages, and there's the, the research is really fascinating. But uh, just about every adult comes into adulthood at 18 years old with a socialized mind, meaning we are the products of our environment. We're the products of the, the society, uh, the subcultures within which we grew up. So 
for the most part, if you grew up in a very conservative home, you enter into adulthood with very conservative viewpoints. If you grew up in a very liberal home, you enter adulthood with more or less liberal viewpoints. In a, a Muslim home, a Muslim worldview. A Christian home, a Christian worldview. Whether or not you're living those out, you, you have a, a lens through which you're viewing the world. And now with, you know, with social media and, and just the, all the influences of society, um, largely we are products of that which influences us. Does this make sense? Okay. Now, the thing with adult cognitive development is that it's not, it's not automatic that you progress from one stage to the next. So it's not like you hit 25 and you move into that second. So you could be in the socialized stage for the rest of your life. Okay. That's not necessarily a bad thing. It's just a, it's an awareness thing. That And the language they use is the sense of self coheres. I get a sense of identity through my externalities, through what's around me. You see a lot of this in political discourse where people are, are very strongly formed by external opinions. And it's hard now with so much information and so many sound bites to really pause, think deeply, and, and synthesize all that information and come up with a coherent uh, sense of identity when it comes to politics. All right. Um, now, the second stage, you can progress beyond the socialized mind is this idea of the, the self-authoring mind. And that shifts from my sense of self coheres externally to my sense of self coheres internally. And now that's like the college student who gets to college. And at, you know, at Baylor, I talked about I had that biology professor who was an atheist. And all of a sudden, he's challenging certain assumptions. And you kind of have this crisis of like, wait, I thought I... And you're getting exposed to all these different ideas. And, and you're forced to, wait, what do I actually believe? Like, what do I think about this? And... And that's happening a lot more as you know, we've moved from kind of rural society to more of an urban society, speaking generally about the West over the past several hundred years. Now we're exposed to so many more ideas, so this is happening more and more where people are being forced to think, think about their own convictions, develop their own uh, uh, sense of self and identity that's distinct from their environment. And it takes a lot of work. All right, the last stage is self-transforming mind. This is kind of a blend of the two, where I'm able to form a sense of self that's con coherent and consistent, and I have a deep set of convictions, yet I remain open to this kind of multi-frame, complex reality to where I'm open-minded in the best sense of the word, to where I'm continuing to upgrade this, my understanding of the world. Instead of getting, because you can get into that self-authoring mind and kind of create a bunker around that that's impervious to, to any new information. Have you guys seen that before? Right to where it's kind of extremely dogmatic in just about every uh, system of thought. All right. Now they they were curious after they kind of observed this in different different people around uh, the West and U.S. in particular. They were wondering like what percentage of adults are at which point along the line in America from kind of 18 to you know uh, 18 and up. What do you guys think? What do you think? And they have a whole, and I've given you a very, very, very high-level overview. They've got a whole, I mean, it's Harvard, so it's very extensive in terms of how they identify these and how they, their research methodology and all this kind of stuff. But just based on my very short explanations, where do you think the percentages are, stage three, stage four, stage five? And there, you'll see in a moment, there's a spectrum, so you can be at different points along stage three and different points along stage four. Anyone want to take a stab? 80, 15, and 5. All right. A little bit more of a cynical view. No, I'm just kidding. Uh, no, you're actually not too far off. Anybody else take a stab? 
Uh-huh. Yeah, yeah. So a little bit more, a little bit more split. Yeah, it's kind of a blend between you guys. Let's see if this will, we got this thing warmed up. Good grief. You know what? How about I just give it to you, and I'll just tell you to advance just that bottom arrow and just point it right back there. Maybe, maybe. Or you can just hit the forward arrow. There you go. All right. So if you do the math, so there's actually two sets of numbers. One is above the line and one's below the line. It's two different independent studies. So if you add them up um, above the line there, so that, that kind of like beginning to end of socialized, 32, 14, 16, and 13, or sorry, uh, 46 and 13, what is that, 59%? So about 60% in the socialized stage, and then you got 30, so you got about 40% in this stage four, the self-authoring, and then less than 1% in the self-transforming stage. Yeah. Now, obviously, there's, you know, 6% are in that transition space between the self-authoring and the self-transforming mind. But what that did for me was, actually, it bred compassion in me. As we're talking about worldview and as we're talking about Actually, A, what, what it first did was it breeds some self-awareness. And it made me wonder, like, where am I at? You know, in that, along that kind of progression, that spectrum. And then it bred compassion that the majority of the people that we are interfacing with are largely being formed by society. Probably a lot of us, and in, in different ways. There are certainly, this is not um, black and white, where, like, part of me could be socialized, and another part of me could be self-authoring. Does that make sense? Um, and so as you're interacting with people and talking about culture and talking about society and talking about worldview, uh, it helps to kind of feel out um, where people are at and understand that the social forces around us are extremely potent. They're very, very strong. And if somebody is being largely formed by their externalities, my set of questions changes. Whereas if I can discern that somebody has deeply internalized something, my set of questions changes, my approach, is, my approach changes. Versus if I'm talking to somebody who is very kind of secure and, and, and self-aware and yet open to different viewpoints, my approach changes. So just for what that's worth, I wanted to throw that out there, Chantel. Yeah, I think, I don't know, I haven't seen that data. My gut would be that um, that there is a kind of bell curve, like standard deviation mathematics, that this corresponds with age, where largely the younger, you know, 18 to 30 is probably more socialized. It's just, it takes time to develop a sense of identity amid the complexity of, you know, culture today. And then to get to a point where you're secure in that identity to where you can turn around and be open to new ideas. And they talk a lot about suspending assumptions. Could you kick that door shut for me? Um, where all of us have assumptions about life and the world and God and self and uh, society and sexuality and so on and so forth. And they talk about at these higher stages of cognitive development, the ability to suspend assumptions in a conversation. All that means, it doesn't mean to reject assumptions, it doesn't mean to discard assumptions, it just means to suspend temporarily. And that basically, again, we all have a lens through which we're looking at the world. So you wear glasses, what's your name? Stephanie, Stephanie. So 
probably most of the time you're not conscious of your glasses, right? You're looking through them at the world around you, but, but the light coming through them is being altered in a way. Your glasses are, are amending the image that you're seeing, and that would change if you put on a different set of or sunglasses or colored lenses, whatever. And after a while, you just forget if you've ever been skiing and you have those colored, polarized, you know, and after a while, you're just not conscious because you're looking through it. Well, in healthy dialogue, um, the ability to suspend those assumptions uh, means to take off that lens. Instead of looking through it, you look at it and you evaluate it. And, and that can be a really scary thing to do. And if you're a parent, you might think like, well, I don't want my kids to suspend their assumptions because what if they reject them? But the reality is if you can't eventually ask healthy questions, there, there's a lack of depth to faith and a lack of depth to your understanding of the world and God. And, and uh, there's actually a study, you can go to the, the next slide. There's a study that was done, um, you know, the Biosphere Projects. You guys probably heard of those. Biosphere 2 is this kind of biodome in Arizona. You might have heard this analogy before, but, you know, it's this perfect environment, um, you know, monitored for humidity and barometric pressure and temperature and uh, insects and mold and bacteria and, and everything. I mean, it's just like the perfect environment. And so they found that, you know, everything is growing at this rapid rate. It's lush. It's green initially. But then all of a sudden they noticed that these trees were dying prematurely and never getting to the full like stature that they were supposed to grow to. And you see some of this, like this kind of death and decay where it should be this green, vibrant, thriving. And so they started doing all these tests, like, wait, what went wrong? And part of this is to try to develop a technology to, you know, to be extra planetary, to develop life on the moon or on Mars. And what they found was that these trees were not developing a root system like they were supposed to because of the lack of what? What do you think? Stress. Yeah. There's no wind in the biosphere. In the, in the biodome. And so the lack of wind, so trees normally they have to, uh, they, they develop this resiliency to the wind. Now too much wind, of course, can destroy a tree, right? A tornado or a hurricane. But the right amount of normal wind enables the tree to develop a much more robust root system. And these trees were not having to withstand any stress. And so uh, they were dying prematurely. And certainly, had they suddenly introduced stress, they would have died even that much more quickly. The analogy, I think, is that we were, as, as humans, we are made to endure a level of stress, and that's stress on our faith, that's stress on our beliefs and worldview. And so, um, I think, you know, when it comes to, uh, we, we have, you know, students come to the discipleship school, and we tell them, hey, this is a safe place to, to voice your questions, to voice your doubts. Uh, faith that can't be evaluated is not a deep faith. And, and again, too much wind can cause damage for sure. So if you send, buddy, send somebody out unprepared into a setting where they're just going to be bombarded, then that can be certainly damaging. But a, a measure of healthy stress and healthy um, pushback on our ideas or, or challenges to our assumptions can actually really deepen them. Have you guys found that to be true in your own lives? It certainly has been, been for me. I mean, there have been sometimes I felt like it was more of a tornado or a hurricane, uh, but those roots clung, you know, just strong enough by the grace of God uh, to bounce back and to be stronger as a result. So, anyway, any other questions on this? I know this is kind of like, why is he? What? Where is this going? Um, 
But uh, I found this to be really interesting, fascinating. I feel like it intersects with this, with this class. All right. Great. Um, what's the next slide? Thanks for, thanks for being my, my slide man. Um, all right. So today we're going to talk about uh, mainly meta-narrative, mainly kind of the big story of the Bible. And, and, and meta, just kind of like uh, high-level narrative story, so kind of the high-level story of the scriptures. Now, why, why do you guys think we're, we're spending an evening on this in a class on worldview? Meta-narrative, the big story of the Bible. Need to know it to defend your faith? Absolutely. What else? Yeah. Yeah, you get context for your story, where you fit in it. Absolutely. What else? Hundred percent. Yeah, absolutely. What else? There's a lot of reasons. What was the original lie or question? Did God really say? And that's still the, I mean, isn't that the question today? I mean, there's, nothing, no, there's nothing new under the sun, right? So that original question in Genesis 3, did God really? Did he really say? I mean, that, you look at any issue in society today where, you know, kind of, Historical Christian faith is under fire. And at the root, that's the question. And, and even beyond that, of course, is there even a God uh, to have said anything in the first place? And so we're just, you know, that's why we talked last week in terms of epistemology. We looked at the, the word of God. The how does God communicate? And is that credible? I mean, is there a kind of a rational basis for faith? Is it just fairy tales? Is it just, is it the same as believing in uh, you know, purple unicorns. Like, is there a reason for the Christian faith that's more substantial than some other claim, some other faith that's supernatural? And my answer to that is a resounding yes in, ter in terms of my own personal belief and wrestling and study. Um, but this is the question. Has God really said? And so uh, we're just going to look at the story of the Bible, which, again, is a collection of what we believe reveals of the nature of God, and we'll, there's a whole series of teachings around this that we're not doing tonight. This is insofar as it intersects with this, uh, this class in particular. But I put this scripture up there because I think there's a, there's a challenge for the, the believer who's trying to love God with all their mind, uh, and especially when you get into these kinds of conversations, because there are a lot of questions that people ask me who are antagonistic to faith that... Honestly, my answer is, that's a great question. I don't know. <laughs> I don't know. I, I, and I think there can be this temptation to feel like we have to be able to answer everything. And, and certainly, oh, let me, so this scripture, that the, the, hidden things, the, the, things, the hidden things belong to God, but the things revealed belong to us and our children that we may do all the works of this, words of this law. So my, my posture towards the scriptures, towards God, towards life is, the things that God has revealed, I want to mine them out diligently, vigorously. Like, 
up to that light horizon, you know, if you, uh, I like astronomy, so uh, we've built telescopes far enough to see basically to the light horizon that we're just not going to be able to see. No, no amount of powerful telescopic equipment is going to allow us to see further than we can see right now. With more detail, for sure, but because of the speed of light and the, and, and the expansion of the universe, there's just a, there's a light horizon we are not going to penetrate, at least in this life. The same is true with God. There's a, there's a horizon that he's established that there are certain mysteries that we will not penetrate this side of heaven. There are secret things, and they belong to God. But there are things that he has revealed about himself, about the world, about humanity, about how we interact with him, about reality. And those things that he has revealed, I want, I want to build the equipment to, yeah, I want to see right up to that horizon. Not so I can prove people wrong, not because I am insecure in my faith, but because I want to love God with all my mind. And what God has revealed about himself leads to worship. And it leads to discipleship. And it leads to more holistic living. And it leads to propagating a flourishing human society. These things that God's revealed about himself enable us to be truly human and fully uh, who God created us to be. Okay, so with that, you can slide to the next, or advance to the next slide. All right, so here's my, uh, the extent of my uh, graphic design capabilities. Uh, so this is in paint, um, so I apologize. <laughs> um, but this is just a little uh, uh, diagram to start to understand the big story of Scripture. Now, if you study, if you search meta narrative and Google, you, you're going to come up with a thousand different ways to break down the big story of Scripture into these different kind of uh, components, these different acts in the in the grander play. But I want to break this down tonight because I really want to emphasize the these kind of bookends here, which would be this. Uh, Genesis 1 and 2, the Gospels, and Revelation 21 and 22. If you can gain proficiency in these three chunks of Scripture, uh, it's my opinion that you're 90% of the way to being able to interpret rightly the rest of Scripture. Okay, Those three chunks of Scripture, Genesis 1 and 2, Revelation 21 and 22, and then right in the middle, the Gospels. Now, why do I say that? Why would I make the claim that if you can understand these, those four books in the middle and then those two chapters, those four chapters, two at the beginning and two at the end, why, why is that 90% of the battle? In my opinion, feel free to disagree with me. Okay, there's a design structure there that the rest of the Bible follows. That's an interesting thought. I don't know, I, I don't know if I agree with that or not. That's a, that's a, I like that. Right, 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 right. Yeah. Yes, yes, that makes a lot of, yes, 100%, agree, absolutely. Did you guys hear that? So there are threads that you see throughout the, all the rest of the, of the scriptures that tie back to the beginning and look forward to the end. Absolutely. What else? Why, is this, these, why are these sections so critical?
yeah, yeah, absolutely. And there are a lot of things we could say in response to this. And yes and amen to what you guys are saying. Essentially, what I would propose to you is, is in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22, what we have is this portrait of the way things are designed, use the word, the way things are supposed to be. You have this portrait of perfection, if you will, this sinlessness. And it's the only portrait we have of a sinless environment. Everything else that we understand about the world is marred by sin. And so God holds up kind of these bookends in Genesis 1 and 2 and Revelation 21 and 22 and says, yes, there's this huge redemptive narrative in the middle, but I want to frame it with this higher vision of what humanity was intended to be and will be at the end of time. Does that make sense? Okay, so if, if you just took Genesis 3 to Revelation 20, you still have an amazing story with Jesus right at the center who's the hero, but you lack context, it's like going on a journey and uh, not having a beginning and ending point, right? The journey is still enjoyable, but there, there is a specific intentionality to God in the journey that we began somewhere and we are ending somewhere, at least this time narrative. And then right in the middle, it's kind of like uh, if you've ever been to a big tent, like uh, Steph and I went to Cirque du Soleil once in college, and, and there was this giant tent set up at uh, the fairgrounds in Dallas, and they had all these supporting, I don't know what you call them, just big poles that held the tent. And right in the middle was this giant pole that went up higher than the others, and it held up the rest of the tent. And to me, the Gospels is that giant stake, that giant pole right in the middle that holds up the rest of the biblical narrative. And so when we talk about hermeneutics or, or exegesis, the, the, the study of interpretation and then application of the Scriptures, all of it, in my opinion, flows through. It's a Christocentric hermeneutic. It's a, a Christ-centered way of understanding the scriptures. And I'll give an example of that here in a, in a little bit. But these, Jesus, in the midst, he just shows up as this life raft in the midst of, you know, if this is one shore and this is the other shore and there's this, this turbulent ocean in the middle, he is this, like, aircraft carrier. Maybe he's a better, uh, said like this little... He's this just this giant oasis of truth in the midst of all these shifting sands of culture and different narratives and all the different stories and all the different beliefs. And again, in my opinion, he stands as this towering ontology right in the middle of all of this chaos. Um, and so I just wanted to put that up there to, to frame uh, the conversation here for the next 30 minutes or so. All right, so what's happening in Genesis 1 and 2? We're just going to um, talk through some highlights here to understand what was God's intentionality? What's happening uh, at the beginning? What's he establishing? All right, so um, what, are, what are, just from your knowledge of the scriptures, Genesis 1 and 2, what are some things that, that God inspiring Moses to write this? Most, you know, most people believe, uh, biblical historians believe Moses wrote the Torah, uh, the Pentateuch in particular, um, what was God's intentionality? What was the Spirit doing in inspiring Moses to write Genesis 1 and 2? This is like our intro. I mean, this is like if you're, you know, literary uh, uh, connoisseur. I mean, it's the, the intro that grips you, that establishes context, introduces you to the main players. So what's the Holy Spirit doing in introducing us through Genesis 1 and 2? What's he establishing? 
Okay? There's a personal God. Right? There's presence. There's breath. Right? There's this very intimate moment that, that when God breathes into his nostrils and animates Adam. Yeah, what else? He's creator, right? Right? Demonstrates his power, demonstrates again his personability. What else? Right, so he, he is a, he decrees, and even creation itself obeys him. I mean, there is a sovereignty, and then he commands Adam and Eve and expects obedience, absolutely. So there's authority. What else? It's good, right? There's no sin. It, it, and it's, so I think a lot of times in, uh, we, we are more, again, this kind of goes back to the socialized mind. When we think of heaven, it's like if I just did like a Warshock kind of ink blot, knee jerk, you know, give me your, your first three or four thoughts when I say heaven. A lot of us, we've been discipled by Hallmark and Dante and, and you know, medieval culture and, and Florentine art. And so we think of clouds and babies with harps and, you know, and, and you know, you may have had the thought, uh, if you're honest, <laughs> Of like I don't want I don't want to go to eternity like if you know like that just sounds like eternity just kind of worshiping like just singing like eternity have you ever just late at night started looping on you're like oh, okay I need to pull out of that like and but what do we see here this is heaven by the way heaven is where God is so this is heaven on earth do we see that scene do we see Hallmark cherub babies with harps and what do we see. Genesis 1 and 2. You're jumping ahead of me. Because, yes, that, that, yes. There's work. Yeah, Adam and Eve have meaningful, productive work. Pre-curse, right? There's economy in this, in this sense. There's productivity. What else? Rest, absolutely. There's these rhythms of work and rest. You've already talked about there. What's that? Right, they have this fellowship, this unbroken fellowship. God is walking in the garden in the cool of the day. Like, what did that look like? What was that, what was that like? It's amazing. What else? Right, so they, are, they have not just, they're not just tending a garden and it's this laborious, meaningless. They have co-created, they've been stewarded this ability to shape the earth to the glory of God. It's amazing. Right, and they have fellowship with one another. There's human interaction, meaningful human fellowship, and so on. You have all these themes that are introduced that then set the stage for the rest of the biblical narrative. And if we don't understand these themes, it establishes the nature of God, like you said, his authority, his, his power, his sovereignty, his uh, personability. We're introduced to the Trinity, this, this first person plural in Genesis 1, 26 through 28, let us make man in our image. And all the attempts to get around that and call that the royal first person plural, it was not a, a, in use at that time in the ancient Near East. This was a clear reference to this Trinitarian God who had existed in himself for eternity past to eternity future. And out of the overflow of that fellowship created man in his image. You get anthropology from this first chapter, meaning like the, the nature of mankind as male and female, as made in the image of God, co-equal, valuable before God. 
um, and so on. There's so much to mine out in these first two chapters that if you watch the biblical writers, often Jesus himself, he, well, in the beginning it was, well, in the beginning it was, and they constantly are pointing back to, and we'll look at Matthew 19 where Jesus reinterprets some of the Pharisees' questions about divorce. And, well, Moses commanded that he says what? Moses allowed you to divorce because of your hardness of heart, but in the beginning it was not so. Because in the beginning God created them male and female. He created them and so on. For this reason a man shall leave his mother and father and be joined to his wife. What God's joined together, let no man separate. Jesus quotes Genesis 2 uh, here in response to the Pharisees' questions. He reinterprets a Levitical passage through this creation narrative and, and reassigns meaning to their interpretation of Scripture. We'll circle back to that. All right. Uh, well, this is fun. I, this is uh, there's so much here. Um, when we talk about human sexuality and all this debate about gender and, and everything else, and we're not going to get into it tonight. That'll be week six, I think. But you have this really cool structure in Genesis 1 where you have um, this series of contrasts where uh, if you just look down the, the, this poetic structure of Genesis chapter 1, you have, you have, well, what are some of the contrasts? Right? There's night and day. What else? Land and water. Light and dark, earth and sky. Yeah, it's, it's contrast, 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 contrast. And then what's the culmination before he rests of his creation? Man and woman, male and female is like this crescendo of this beautiful contrast in God's creation. And, and then that sets the stage for interpreting human sexuality. And we'll get into that in week six. Okay. So then what's going on in Revelation 21 and 22? If all this is happening in Genesis 1 and 2, what's happening here? Give you a little bit of a hint underneath. Yeah, yeah. That's a great summary for time's sake. Let me just, let me just run with that, Kent. So you have the restoration of this. All of this is recovered, yet this begins where? In a garden. Where does this end? In a garden city. Did you, who said that? Yeah. In a garden city. So we still have all these garden elements. There are trees in, in both. There are rivers in both narratives. There's this fruitfulness in, in both narratives. And yet you have this city. A city is a testament to what? Humanity, this human productivity, this co-creation. And so you've gone from this garden to this garden city. God has preserved mankind. Of course, God, has, God builds this city. It's the new Jerusalem. But there's this imagery, this, this insinuation, because then you get all these, uh, Revelation's a really cool book, but there's all these, these portraits of like the kings of the earth bringing the wealth of the nations into this city. There's still this productivity and economy and trade and language yet without the presence of sin, unencumbered, uninhibited by sin. And so you have this, this culmination, that, again, the, the crescendo, the climax of the biblical story is now all this work has been done. This is the gospel, right? Now, the redemption narrative is a, is a core part of the gospel. 
But the full gospel is that the kingdom of God is among men. That's what Jesus, when he proclaimed the gospel, he had yet to die and rise from the dead. There was no cross yet. Yet he sent his disciples out to preach the gospel. What was that gospel? The gospel is the kingdom of God has come among you. It's, it's invaded your world again. Are you tracking with me? Okay. So you had heaven and earth, one. God's physical manifest presence with man in the garden. With sin, Genesis 3, what happened? There's a separation, right? There's this fundamental separation. Adam and Eve evicted from Eden, and it's all kind of complexity there. We're not going to get into tonight. But basically, you had the, the physical, tangible presence of God was separate from them. Now, God is in this mysterious way. He's always with us. He's never left Adam and Eve. But that, that physical manifest God who was walking in the garden in the cool of the day, that, that reality is no longer present. And so there's this separation of heaven and earth. So then what's happening here? Right, you have the reuniting. You have the, the new heavens and the new earth. And if you've read the book Heaven by Randy Alcorn, he starts off, he talks about how he does these seminars, and he asks Christians, by show of hands, how many of you will spend eternity in heaven? You know, and most people raise their hand. He said, biblically, theologically, most of you are wrong if you think you're going to spend eternity in heaven. The, the, the narrative ends on the new earth. You're going to spend eternity on the new earth which is the reuniting of heaven and earth, the new Jerusalem coming down out of the heavens and coming to earth. Now, there's some metaphorical and, and uh, language and some imagery there, but the point is this, this presence, this tangible manifest presence of God. So what Jesus is doing is he is he's a foreshadow. He's the now and not yet, the coming of that kingdom again, heaven breaking through back into earth. This happened in different ways in the Old Testament too, the theophanies, the the pillar of fire, the pillar of smoke, the tabernacle, the temple. There were these little po- these little portals, windows that connected heaven and earth again, the burning bush and so on. But Jesus now is this kind of unbroken tether, and now we have that by the Spirit as well, the people of God. But there's this foreshadowing. It's pointing to this, this end, this, this reality at the end of time. Okay? So, where are we? All these cool parallels between Genesis 1 and 2 and, tw- and then Revelation 21 and 22. God is the creator, creates heaven and earth, creates new heavens and new earth. God dwells with mankind, calls us children. God dwells with mankind, calls us his children. We can see him without shame. We can see him without shame. He is light and life. And again, he is, in li- he is light and life. There are these trees for sustenance and satisfaction. You have these trees for sustenance, satisfaction, and healing, and so on. All right? Now, Going back to, is this helpful? You guys tracking with me? All right. Um, again, this frames our entire set of beliefs. So when we're talking about worldview, like this is the lens, hopefully, that we are, uh, that we are looking at the world through. All right, so Genesis 1 and 2, I've already said it, but we're just going to say it in a little bit of a different language. God establishes three relationships for mankind to exist in. What are those relationships. I won't advance the slide for a while, so if you want to sit, you totally can. (laughs) You're welcome to stand. Three relationships for mankind. What are those relationships? Man and God? Yeah, family by extension, man and man. So just mankind's relationship with other mankind, right? So man, God, man, man, and man creation. Yeah, man, man, woman is 
man, mankind, mankind. It's like relationships among mankind. So you have this God-man relationship, this man-man relationship, and this man-creation relationship, right? So uh, do we need to break that down? You, you on the same page with me? Do you believe that's the, that's the case? In that they obviously had fellowship with God. He put them in fellowship with one another, and then he gave them stewardship of the earth, Genesis 1, 26 to 28. So what happened then in, in the biblical word, uh, the Hebrew word used to describe the state of these relationships is this, is this really cool word, shalom. You might have heard of it if you've been in church for any length of time. And it's this peace isn't, isn't sufficient to capture the essence of this word. It's whole, it's pure, it's right, it's beautiful, it's lovely. You think of that uh, uh, true, noble, right, pure, lovely, admirable, excellent, praiseworthy, uh, Philippians 4.8. It's, it's just perfection. It's thing, as things should be is this shalom. And these relationships are in this state of shalom in Genesis 1 and 2. And then Genesis 3 comes along, you know, the story, Adam and Eve disobey. They, they reject God's authority. They take it upon themselves. They eat of the fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And you have this shattering of this shalom in all three relationships. You see that immediately. They are hiding from God when he comes on the scene. Right, they're, they're, they feel shame. They're immediately throwing each other under, each other under the bus. Well, the, the woman told me, well, you know, the serpent, and and then you have immediate enmity between their children, Cain killing Abel. You have this fracturing of human relationship, and then you have this fracturing of the relationship with the physical earth and and mankind's responsibility to tend and steward it. How, how did that happen? What, what's going on there? How do we know it was fractured? Yeah, so there's part of the curse, right? You're going to uh, earn your keep through blood, sweat, and tears, toil, thorns, thistles, and, and so on. So there's the, now this tussle between us and our physical labor. It's kind of like, um, uh, if you've heard me tell this story before, I apologize. It's redundant, but um, I've told this story in a couple other settings. Uh, in 2003 or thereabouts, I went to Tunisia with uh, the laymans. They were looking to move to Tunisia. And, and uh, Jonathan Lair, who's the pastor of our church in Tijuana, actually, they just moved back to South San Diego. But uh, we were on the team together. He was the administrator. And all the three weeks, this was like pre-smartphones, so most everything was like paper receipts. And anybody been an administrator for a long-term or short-term trip? So you, you, you can feel this viscerally. So... Um, I mean, like 600 receipts after three weeks on the ground in Tunisia. This is before per diem where you could just, so like every meal had receipts. Like we had a large team. And so he had, he had diligently, studiously each night, he had this big binder and all these, you know, organization systems, these clips, paper clips and all this kind of stuff. And by the end of three weeks, it was like perfectly categorized. It was chronologically, you know, all this, it was in perfect order so that he could give it to our accountant when he got back to Waco. Well, we, he had to come back to the States early, so we were going to leave a day earlier than the team, and so I was going to accompany him. We overslept our alarm. The taxi driver woke us up by calling up, you know, from the lobby. And so we just kind of threw everything together, ran downstairs, threw it in the taxi cab. He, you know, he set the land speed record getting to the airport. It was terrifying. It was awesome. We get to the airport and get into the customs. If you've been in, you know, it's not like customer service, the Tunis airport. There's not a bunch of signs in English. There's not these all these helpful people. It's just this chaotic scene. And we didn't know, you know, so we stand in this forever long line. We get to the front, and this 
angry man tells us in Arabic that we've, you know, or we pieced together, we'd fill out the wrong form. He tells us to get in the back of the line. And so by now, we knew we'd missed our flight. So we stand in this line, and then we see in a monitor the flight had been delayed, and it seemed like just long enough that we might make it. And so we get to the front of the line, we get through customs, get to security, and Jonathan's the one that's randomly flagged. So they pulled him aside, and they pull everything, all of his contents out, and lay it on this table. And so there's all this, you know, all this stuff, and they inspect everything. And I mean, we're like, you know, trying to make this international flight. And uh, and they say, okay, you're good to go. They didn't bother helping him repack, so we're trying to stuff everything in. And he had kind of Tetrised everything together. And you know, when you undo it, it's like it's impossible to get it back all back. So he shoved as much as he could into his bags, and the rest he just kind of scooped up into, into his arm, and we start chucking through the terminal towards the gate. Well, this is in the days of Discman. Um, so his Discman was in his arm along with his binder and a few other things. And as we're running, the headphones come dislodged. He is unaware. And we're running, and he steps on the headphones, and it pulls the Discman out, and it like uncorks this, this armful of stuff he has. He starts to drop it. He trips on the cord from his, his discman, and he throws the binder up in the air. And 600 receipts go, <laughs> I mean, thousands of people in this airport, or hundreds, I don't want to be too, hundreds of people in this airport terminal, you know, nasty floor. I mean, it's like, it's a mess. And so, you know, I'm, I'm laughing, actually. Uh, he's not. Um, but we're like on our hands and knees, just scooping wet receipts, and people are stepping on them, and just taking handfuls and shoving them into his bag. And we get, you know, what looks like all of them, and get to the gate, and just barely, we're the last people on the flight, and we barely make it on, sweating. And he spends the next seven hours just, you know, like one at a time and slowly puts them all back in order and gets them back into the this state of, of, of order, of shalom that they had began in. And, and I felt like I, when I was thinking of this, you know, the meta-narrative and what happened in Genesis 3 and this state of shalom, perfection that was shattered, that was like the image, because I remember feeling that in this airport terminal, like, no, you know. And I think that was something like that in Genesis 3 when Adam and Eve, it was like, you know, like the angels, like, no, they're seeing all the receipts flutter back down to the terminal floor in the airport. So what you have in the rest of the story then from Genesis 3 to Revelation 20 is all of us scooping together all these receipts on our hands and knees. Jesus, ultimately, the one who's scooping together all these receipts, picking them up one by one, cleaning them up, straightening them out and getting them back into the state, into the, the, the order that he had created them in. Is this image making sense? Okay. And what we are restoring are these three relationships. And I say we, ultimately, this is the work of Jesus. This is the, the climax of the redemptive narrative is told in the Gospels. But now we are participating with him by his spirit. This is the commission to disciple nations, to, to reestablish shalom. I love the way Michael Miller put it on Friday night when he said, I think it was Michael Miller, and he said, uh, my goal is to live in such a way that, you know, when Jesus returns, he's like, well done, good and faithful servant. I have less, uh, what, what, how did he frame it? I have less work of, I have less to reconcile. I have less to 
cleanup. Basically, I have less mess to clean up in your domain because you were faithful in that domain. And so what you have here in this redemptive narrative is the restoration of all three of these relationships. All right? Now, I'm going to focus in on this for just a moment because I think this is important when it comes to um, this worldview class. I've got a ton of other notes here. I mean, we could break down Genesis 3 more where the blood archetype is introduced and how all this imagery throughout the Old Testament through Noah and Babel and the calling of Abram and Joseph and Moses and the law and Joshua and Judges and the kings and the prophets, all of this is pointing forward to this, this, this redemption, the reconciliation of these three relationships that would, that would be ultimately made possible through the person of Jesus, his life, death, and resurrection. And then how in the book of Acts and then the epistles, it's kind of looking back. It's the ministry of the Spirit moving forward, but then the epistles are, are Paul trying to apply, and Peter and John trying to apply, Jude and others, James, the teachings of Jesus in culture. They're, they're looking back at the life of Jesus, and they're trying to lens now the reality of the church and culture through the teachings and the person of Jesus. So we can talk about all that. We don't have time. Um, but what you have in Jesus is the beginning of the restoration. What was lost in Genesis 1 and 2 at the fall of Genesis 3 is, is being restored as we look forward to Revelation 21 and 22, and Jesus breaks in and starts to make that possible. That's the ministry of his life. So how does he do that? There's, there's redemption through the cross and the resurrection. That's the, rep, that's the restoration of which relationship? The God-man relationship. It starts there, right? There has to be redemption. Mankind is cut off from the life of God. Uh, Paul makes that abundantly clear in Ephesians 2. You are dead in your trespasses and sins, but God, by his mercy, uh, made us alive together with Christ, not through works any man should boast, uh, and so on. So there's this restoration of the God-man relationship through Jesus. But it doesn't stop there. What else does he restore? Okay, the earth, yeah, he is going to physically redeem the earth. But even uh, before that, what were, what were those other two relationships? The man-man relationship. So what do we see in Ephesians 2, right after that gospel narrative? What's that? Reconciliation. He breaks down the dividing wall of hostility. Vincent's spoken on that so eloquently in so many contexts recently. And, uh, and to, in order to reconcile, so you have the, the division, the shattering of those relationships between Adam and Eve, between their children, and, and on down through. I mean, we could go and probably just hear stories that would make us all sob for hours from our own just families, let alone what's going on in Syria and Iraq and Yemen and Somalia and Afghanistan and Haiti, Washington, D.C. I mean, there's the fracturing and the shattering of human relationship is everywhere as a result of sin. So Jesus is not only restoring the God-man relationship, but the man-man relationship. Do you ever thought it was a stretch? It was a thought. Uh, uh, Drew shared on, I didn't really talk about the coming of the Spirit, and like why he is able to take the habits and the habit or the history of the thought. Does that make sense? Yeah. I don't know if I'm, if I'm prepared to parse out the mechanics of exactly when the pro- the project of, I mean, I think that began in the Old Testament. It was that like God's ministry through the spirit, you know, was this idea of, of calling this one man, Abram, and then you have the Abrahamic promise in Genesis 12 that through you, 
all the nations, all the families of the earth will be blessed. And you have the beginnings of that happening, but it was insufficient. They didn't have the, the, power, the indwelling spirit of God. And so then you have it in Jesus. You know, he's, he's, he's being asked questions. Tell my brother, divide the inheritance with me. And he's, he's subverting that question and getting to the heart issue. And he's working at restoring people to God, restoring people to one another. And then certainly Pentecost, it like hits, I mean, it, it gets amplified, you know, it's uh, the nitrous, just big boost. And now you have power that's distributed among the church to reconcile people one to another. And then there's the reconciliation of the man-creation relationship. That's uh, rediscovering purpose in our God-given callings. That's literal stewardship of the earth, which I think the church is, mass, is my own opinion, massively lagging behind in today. In fact, and this is where I'll just make this comment. I'm going to um, anyway, just take it for what it's worth. Um, this is kind of mixed thoughts and opinions for a moment. Um, that if you look at, at biblical or at church history, um, you have in, in so it's my opinion that the church is, should be leading the charge at restoring all three of those relationships. The God-man relationship, the man-man relationship, and the man-creation relationship. Starting with the Reformation, uh, with Luther and, and on forward, you have a, a huge emphasis on the redemption story, on the, the reparation of the man-God relationship. And rightly so. That had been lost in the Roman Catholic Church. And, and what I think has happened, though, is this overcorrection among specifically Protestant Christianity, evangelical Christianity, that still um, primarily and, and solely... Uh, or at least primarily emphasizes the restoration of the God-man relationship. Now, that is not wrong. That actually needs to increase. That only, that only should keep going up. But it has not emphasized then the restoration of the man-man relationship and the man-creation relationship. So you have a lot of these uh, churches with more of like a liberal theology when it comes to restoration between God and man that have taken up that mantle. And now they, because of the, what I perceive of as the lack among the evangelical church, They've really taken this mantle of the restoration of man-man relationship and man-creation relationships. You have all these social justice issues that the liberal church has championed. Now, this, these are broad sweeping statements. I'm aware of that. It's not true across the board. But what I, what I see, the, the mandate for the church in the scriptures here is the restoration of, of all these relationships, that we are to be champions of, first and foremost, the proclamation of the gospel so that people can be restored to God and have fellowship with him and have the power of the Holy Spirit in them. And then from that place, the process of discipleship and sanctification restores relationship among mankind, all races, all gender, socioeconomic classes, uh, living as one under the banner of Christ, Pentecost, this reversal of the division of mankind, and then the stewardship of the earth. And that's not just like tree-hugging ecology, though I think it includes that. This is um, the stewardship of all of our callings in shaping society and shaping the planet through estate planning, through teaching and, and stewarding the mind, and through uh, city planning and through politics and sports entertainment. All of these are our relationship to the ter like this terrestrial connection we have to the, the world we live in. And it gives us vision now to establish order and shalom and peace within the boundaries that God has established for us, whether that's at home uh, establishing a, this microcosm of heaven in a home and raising children or in an office or a dormitory or a neighborhood. We're establishing these little 
pockets of heaven, heaven breaking in and invading earth in this way. Is this making sense? All right. I think that's a really, it's just my opinion, I think that's a really key point that I'd love to see just kind of the, the yeast of that work into the dough of the church, the evangelical church more and more, that we would see this bigger story that, that the gospel that we think of, the, the redemption narrative, the gospel of salvation, is nested in this much bigger portrait of the restoration of all things. Uh, go ahead and, and uh, if you would, jump to the next slide. And we're going to wrap this up with a few thoughts on exegesis and hermeneutics. All right, so um, Ephesians 1, 8, uh, sorry, 9 and 10, uh, Paul kind of tips his hand here. And, and, um, and he says this in several different ways in the, gospel, and in the epistles. But he says, he, God, made known to us the mystery of his will according to his purpose. It's like what well, Paul's saying, this is what God's up to. Uh, we, f- we figured it out by the Holy Spirit. He's, he's shown us what he's doing What's he doing? He set forth as a, uh, in Christ as a plan for the fullness of time to what? Unite all things in Christ. All things. Not even just all people. All things. All people to God. All people with one another. All of our labor and our productivity. All things are coming under this banner, the headship of Jesus. That's what Paul was doing in his ministry, come under the lordship of Christ, bring every, all your relationships, all of your endeavors, all of your, your vision for life, your, your reason for existence comes under the banner of Jesus. The next one, Colossians 1, 19 and 20, says it this way, for in him, in Jesus, the fullness of God, all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to what? Reconcile. That's exactly what Jonathan was doing with receipts. Like this is this kind of accounting language. God is reconciling to himself all those. He's scraping up all the receipts off the Tunis uh, terminal floor. All things himself, whether on earth or in heaven. He's bringing everything back together under the lordship of Christ by making peace through the blood of his cross. So this to me, this is the, I mean, again, there's so much more we could say, but this is the meta narrative, the big story that we are caught up in as, as followers of Jesus. And this, is, this gets me excited because I think if we grasp this, then we have a voice in every issue in society. We can't turn a blind eye to, to certainly lostness because we're called to re- repair mankind's relationship with God. We can't turn a blind eye to racial injustice because we're called to repair relationships one to another. We can't turn a blind eye to what's going on in the environment, and it's not a political statement. We have a a call to steward the the planet that we've been given, and there's now meaningful dialogue and debate that can happen among believers in the spirit of Jesus and what that means and how we do that. But it doesn't mean we can just ignore it because we are caught up in the big story of God where where God is reconciling all of these things in the person of Jesus. Does that make sense? You with me? Okay. So with that, and I took most of the time on that, so whatever. Um, we can bleed over into next week if we need to. A uh, couple of people, if you could help me hand out. What's coming around right now are a few thoughts on exegesis. And once you get it, you can just flip straight to the second page. We're not going to look at the first page. Now, this is, you know, some people study this for four years in college. We're going to talk about this for about five minutes. Um, 
But exegesis is just a big word. All it means, and you can see there at the top of that second page, where uh, in parentheses, exegesis is the process of mining out the author's intent. All right, we're mining out the author's intent when we read the Bible. One of the dangers of our kind of devotional society today and the way that we practice Bible devotions in the West is that we tend to kind of popcorn, like, um, I'm not against devotionals. Is that my utmost for his highest? I've never used it. But uh, I know there are a lot of great devotionals out there. Um, but, but when you lift passages of Scripture out of the context and you just interpret what you think it means to you in that moment, um, I think we're, at, at worst, we're in danger of, of truly misinterpreting and misapplying Scripture. And at best... We're just not seeing the whole story and how amazing this passage of Scripture actually is in its broader context. Uh, I've seen this happen in so many different ways. I've done it myself, uh, sadly, in so many different ways. But we read our own meaning into the text in, in a way that that's not actually what the author was trying to say. Um, uh, an example would be, I think it's in Jude, uh, uh, where kind of in the preamble, it's that or Philemon, but he says, the writer says, uh, I pray that you may be effective in sharing this, I think in the NIV translation, I pray that you may be effective in sharing your faith so that you'd understand all the good that you have in God or something that's a paraphrase. But in our vernacular, what do we, what do we think of? What's the meaning of sharing your faith? Yeah, evangelism, right? In that context, that that's not the meaning, though. In that in that passage, the meaning there, the the word that's used, koinonia, it's the the communion of the saints. What he's saying is, I pray that as you share your faith one of, with one another, like in a life group setting, that you're gaining insight into all that you have in Christ. That doesn't mean don't go share your faith. It just means that passage is not one you lean on to establish the obedience of sharing the gospel. There's other passages that you can use to do that. Does that make sense? Now, that's a, a, best, that's a good, uh, that's, that's, that's not a terrible misapplication of Scripture because that's still a biblical concept. But you can see how, and you guys have been around long enough, and you've seen how people can lift a passage out of Scripture, assign their own meaning to it, attach spiritual authority to it, and then lead you know, whole churches and movements and, uh, astray. And so we, we want to be students of what was the author's intent? What was the Holy Spirit trying to communicate through Luke or through Micah or through Joshua or through uh, Paul and these others? And, and then here are some keys to do that. And I, again, we're not going to go through all of these uh, or, or many of them or any of them for the sake of time. But I want to start with this first uh, point up here that even when you, before you open the Bible, you have to understand that you're engaging in the science of interpret, Bible interpretation purely in which translation you pick to read. Translators are actively engaged in interpretation even as they're translating. Do you know that? Because, uh, and there's actually somebody who's done this, there's, if, you, if you speak foreign languages, you know that other languages have different syntax, different diction, different idioms than English. So, you know, like in Spanish, it goes uh, noun adjective, so Casablanca, whereas in English, it'd be adjective noun, white house. And so if you just translate Spanish, you know, one for one, it's kind of hard to read. Well, it's that much more so with Hebrew and Greek. If you just translate Hebrew and Greek the way it was, it's almost insensible to modern English 
thinkers and speakers. And so when they're translating the scriptures from Hebrew and Greek and Aramaic, they're making interpretive choices uh, based on their, the science of, of, uh, of interpretation, language interpretation. All that to say, be, be conscious of what interpretation you're reading. There's a spectrum you know, in that world. It's a spectrum from wooden to paraphrastic, wooden being a, a closer kind of interpretation of the original syntax and diction, paraphrastic being a looser but, but spoken in language that's more... Uh, readily accessible to modern English speakers. Uh, and I'm not making a statement that don't read paraphrastic translations, but understand you're, you're getting more interpretation than maybe you're aware of when you go with, with like the, the message or the passion translation or whatever. It's almost like a commentary when you start, which are great. They can add valuable insight. One example, I think this is Galatians 6, uh, 3.26 or 3.28. In the NIV, Paul talks about, uh, he's, he's been talking about there's no Jew or Greek, slave free. But then he says, but you are all sons of God. I'm sorry, in the NIV, he says, you're all children of God. And that Greek word he uses to translate the word children is actually, that the NIV translates children, is actually a word that means sons. It's a gender-specific gender word. There are other words that are more gender-neutral he could have used. So the ESV and the NASB, which tend to be more closely, they tend to stick more closely to the original language, they translate that passage, you are all sons of God. I don't know why the NIV translators chose children. Maybe because in our kind of uh, gender-charged, you know, uh, this kind of reaction against kind of this patriarchal male-dominant society. But when you understand the culture, you lose a little bit of the power of that verse. Why? Yeah, why? In that culture, what's the difference? Inheritance. So Paul's readers at that time, when they, when they would have read, he chose to call us sons, all these women, they would have been blown away. They would not have been offended by that because women didn't get what at that time? Inheritance. Paul's saying, you're all sons of God. You're all inheritor. In, you know, you're all getting an inheritance in God. So we lose that little nugget by just stepping away from maybe an uncomfortable translation uh, towards a more paraphrastic translation. Anyway, a lot to say. Be conscious of what you're reading. Um, and then identify the context. Spend some time understanding what genre are you reading. You don't read poetry the same way you read narrative. Um, you don't read... So narrative often, like the Old Testament, I remember talking to my mom at the time, she was not a believer, and, and um, she was just, I didn't know how to answer her questions at this time, but I remember she was saying, like, why would you obey the Bible? It, it talks about killing, you know, whole groups of people, and like, and she was just listing these different stories from the Old Testament uh, as if those were prescriptive, like we're supposed to follow that example. And at the time, I was like, I don't, I don't, I don't do that, you know? And she's like, well, why is that different than other passages, you know? And, and you got to understand, there's totally different literary forms that are used in the scriptures. Narrative is almost never prescriptive. It's almost always descriptive. Have you noticed that there's not a single verse that denounces polygamy in the Bible? And interesting. Now, there is, there's some instructions for elders and deacons to be husbands of one wife, but it never specifically prohibits polygamy as a prescribed moral form. But what does the Bible do? It doesn't prescribe, but it what? Describes what happens when you practice polygamy. You got to think like an Easterner. They're, very, they're not Greek. You know, don't just tell me what to do. It paints story after story 
there is not a single story in the Bible that paints polygamy in a positive light. The Easterner would not need a prescriptive verse prohibiting polygamy. They would have had 85 stories of, I don't want to touch that with a 10-foot pole. That's a horrible idea. So a lot of times the Bible is descriptive and not prescriptive. And so there's some thoughts here on, on parsing that out a little bit, on understanding some genre considerations here with poetry and narrative and law and prophets and wisdom and gospels, parables, epistles, and apocalyptic literature. All of these need to be read with some different considerations in mind because there are different literary forms, just like we have different literary forms today. Okay, so exegesis is essentially doing just that, just mining out the, uh, the author's original intent as best we can. And then, of course, you can turn to helpful commentaries and others who have wrestled with difficult passages. What did the author intend here? And so then hermeneutics, or it's, that's, hermeneutics isn't in this. This is just something we use in the D school. Just print it off for you for what it's worth. Hermeneutics, then, is the science of, inter- of, of application. If, if exegesis is the science of interpretation, trying to, trying to understand this narrative and all these... I'm in Leviticus right now in my devotional reading, and I talk about a, you know, just a head-spinning, like, what? I mean, but there's context there. You have to understand Leviticus was written for us, but not to us. It was written by Moses to the Israelites in a, in a very... Uh, the the Bible talk, or the science of Bible interpretation talks about occasion. Understand the occasion for the passage that you're reading. Why was it written and to whom? First uh, Corinthians was an occasional letter written in response to a bunch of other letter or letters that Paul had received. Specific questions he's addressing. Leviticus is written to the children of Israel coming out of 400 years of slavery and trying to understand how to be a nation, a covenant nation under God's leadership. And so there's occasion to be wrestled with, uh, but. It's, it's critical to understand. These three pillars, Genesis 1 and 2, the Gospels, Revelation 21 22, again, is a lens through which you can take difficult passages back to what was the original intention? Okay, slavery in the Old Testament, treatment of women in the Old Testament, apparent genocide in the Old Testament. Those are difficult things to wrestle with. But that wasn't the, like, let me filter that through Genesis 1 and 2, through the Gospels, and through Revelation 21 and 22, and try to mine out what was God's intention with these laws. And so you see that again. That's where we'll end. Uh, Jesus does this in Matthew 19 in response to the Pharisees when they quote Deuteronomy 24, 1 through 4, Adam, or, or throw out different bits of that passage about divorce. He says, you guys don't understand. <laughs> This should mess with your, like, Bible reading, by the way, just this one passage where Jesus basically says it was never intended to be that. God only commanded that because of your hardness of heart. But that wasn't God's original intention. You're like, why, why didn't he just command what he – well, he was discipling a nation. If you, ever, if you raise kids, you don't expect them to act like 18-year-olds or 6-year-olds. There's this kind of stepwise, progressive, like if God dealt with every issue that you have right now, you'd, you'd vaporize, like you'd spontaneously combust, right? So essentially what Jesus is saying is, guys, guys, God was taking a nation, a, a polytheistic nation out of Egypt and slowly discipling them into his ways. And actually the the laws for marriage and treatment of women were radical at that time and place in history. I mean, radically different than the ancient Near, other ancient Near Eastern systems. 
and so it's it's not good for us to moralize and and overlay our current understanding of equal treatment of sexes on this you know 14th century BC society. But anyway, it's a different conversation. But Jesus is basically saying, no, 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 no. Go back to the beginning. Go back to the guys, Pharisees. Go back to God's original intention is right there. It's laid out for you. Don't, don't go into this um, occasional circumstance with the nation of Israel and then justify your, your wants, basically, is what's going on. Um, leveraging the scripture wrongly in that way. So we interpret Scripture by looking at the author's original intent. We apply Scripture, running it through this, this, these three pillars, the Genesis 1 and 2, the Gospels, Revelation 21 22. If you ever get stuck in, a, in an application, how do I respond to this? I don't understand. You have to look at it in the context of the broader narrative of Scripture, the message and the ministry of Jesus, the, the spirit with which he lives and teaches, his, his methods and his message. All right, again, it's a four-year seminary degree. We just scratched the surface on exegesis and hermeneutics. But really, all of this flows from meta-narrative, from understanding the story of the scriptures. This anchors our faith amidst so many, again, competing stories in today's day and age. Um, and so we'll, we'll pause there. We'll pick up again next week on, I think, ontology, basically looking at the, the Trinity and how we understand reality. Uh, but any questions from today or thoughts or disagreements? A longer class, yeah. I don't know. We, I think we'd lose some folks. I love it. Yeah. Yeah, it's a great question. Say it again. Rephrase it just a little bit. My brain's slowing down. So. Right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Yeah, that's 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 a really great question and a tricky one because I think it's going to depend on what passage, we're, what issue and what passage we're talking about. The short response I would give to that is the Wesleyan quadrilateral. It's a, kind of a mouthful. But basically, um, the Wesleyan quadrilateral, quadrilateral, when they were wrestling with that issue, basically like the slippery slope of... of claiming kind of some culturally contextual circumstance to justify an interpretation. They would go through a f kind of a four, uh, four tests. And the first was just the scripture itself. So what does scripture say about scripture when it comes to biblical interpretation? So taking the whole breadth of scripture, and again, not just building a doctrine out of one reference or whatever. Uh, the second would be tradition. So how have 2,000 years of Bible interpreters, how, how, for 2,000 years, what's been the orthodox treatment of a specific passage? So to take, for instance, like the seven prohibited passages on homosexuality that are under fire today. That's a, it was only in the 1960s, really, really the early 1980s that this cohesive narrative against those specific passages emerged. There's been 
3,000 years, if you go back to the Jewish tradition, 3,000 years of complete agreement across, complete, 99% agreement across all of the different expressions of the church. That should tell you something, right? Um, so anyway, so scripture, tradition, and then reason. So literally employing the God-given human reason uh, that we have, and then experience uh, in that order. Now, modern hermeneutics, biblical hermeneutics, and, and humanistic hermeneutic is to switch that. So we build our concept of reality on experience first that informs our reason, and then we might consult with tradition, and we don't we disregard the scriptures altogether. So it's not a, it's not a complete answer, but there are some safeguards to, to keep you from proof texting or from you know interpreting a, a cultural issue, reading into that. Uh, there's so much more there, and we could nuance it based on based on the issue, but there has to be interpretation. There has to be some cultural context taken into consideration. Um, I, can, I think a surface-level reading is available to any believer. The Holy Spirit inspired the scriptures. He can in, give revelation, um, and yet there are deeper and deeper understandings we can have of scripture by being a student of the text and a student of the culture in which it was written uh, in a broader community of believers to safeguard against heresy. It's not a it's not a great response, but in the time allotted, that's the that's what I would say in response to that. Okay, we took right up to seven thirty tonight. So just for sixty seconds, turn to one person. Um, take away from tonight, just process it just a little bit. If you're riding home with somebody, just uh, continue the dialogue. What was a takeaway from tonight? And maybe one kind of short application this week. What's something you can do in response tonight? Whether it's just Pray about one thing, share one thing with with somebody, uh, or apply something literally from like exegetical reading and so on. So turn to somebody real quick. What was the takeaway? What's something you can apply? Go for it.